Hello everybody, my name is Oscar Ramos, Partner and Managing Director at SOSB. As we're gearing up for our next demo day on November 24th, let's revisit some of our most memorable conversations about the venture capital landscape in Asia with renowned investors from Singapore, India, and China. Enjoy, and don't forget to sign up for next demo day to meet the 10 startups chosen for our latest cohort. Check out all the links in the show notes. We'll be back with a brand new season next month. Until then... Today, we're going to have a special episode recorded from RISE, one of the top conferences in the region that brings together startups, corporates, VCs, and ecosystem players. I'm Oscar Ramos, and I'm going to be your host for today. Our guest today is Wade Holman, founding partner in Arbor Ventures, the first VC fund specialized in fintech in the Asian ecosystem. With Wade, we're going to talk about her experience in the financial industry, where she started to learn about the opportunities in the space, then how she went to financial to investment technology, and how she combined both of them coming to Asia to start the first branch of City Ventures in the region. Today, we have Wave Holman, partner at Urban Ventures, a veteran in the financial services industry that was recruited to run City Ventures in Asia, and that was his, her entrance to the venture capital. At the end of 2013, she started Arbor Ventures, the first venture fund focused on fintech in Asia. And last year, they closed the second fund, which was the largest VC fund raised by female-only general partners globally. Wei, thank you very much for joining us today here at RISE to share with us some insights about the venture and the financial services industry in Asia. But I want to go back to the beginnings when you started your career in the financial services. What was exciting about financial services when you started? Well, that's many, many years ago. So I actually stumbled into financial services by accident, to be honest. You know, when, as a, first, a college grad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But luckily, my first job with, a, with an asset management firm in, in the U.S., and I've kind of stayed in financial services ever since. So I've done a lot of different things in financial services from, you know, equities trading to being an investment banker to real estate investing. Prior to joining City to start City Ventures in Asia, I was for a long time a technology investment banker, both in the Silicon Valley and then in China. What was fintech back then when you started? What was the first thing that you remember being uh, innovative, surprising or, or disruptive in the space? Well, I think, I mean, fintech, I think, as a word, has been around a long time, but I think the current evolution of fintech, the, the latest wave we've seen really probably started post-2008 financial crisis. You know, if you look at the rise of companies like Lending Club, there are a lot of startups realize that the traditional financial institutions are not able to really service the needs of the average consumer and the changing demands of the average consumer. So uh, a lot of startups were began that during that time. Uh, and if you, if you, Fast forward sort of to what's happened in Asia, maybe unlike traditional markets, unlike the U.S. or Europe, where fintechs were trying to disrupt traditional financial institutions, in Asia, you know, there were simply services and products that just were not available to the average consumer or to SMEs. So whole new categories of financial products were created, everything from payments, as we've seen what's happened with Alipay, uh, WeChat Pay to alternative lending. You know, one of our portfolios, Lufax, is one of the largest alternative lenders in the world. They came in to fulfill, like, these huge voids that were left in the market by traditional financial institutions. 
When you started your career in the world of investment as an investment banker, you're working with uh, later stage companies. Was technology an, an area or when you were looking into financial services uh, as an investment banker, were you were looking more into service companies? Well, I was a technology investment banker, so I worked across for everything from hardware to software. I think banks actually is one of the largest consumer of technology of any industry, right? And But the problem is most traditional legacy banking infrastructure to tend to be old, very burdensome. Um, it's difficult for a large financial institution to overhaul its systems very quickly because it's a lot of cap, you know, a lot of sort of resources that have gone into it, both people and money. For them to overhaul, for example, or consume, even a consumer banking app, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Whereas a Imagine what a startup can do with that kind of capital. That's why I think, you know, startups have been very, very, very good at engaging with consumers, with it changing behaviors. And the banks, larger financial institutions have learned that, you know, in order for them to keep up with the demands of their consumers, they need to partner with a lot of these sort of more innovative, particularly consumer facing layer, if you will. But even on the traditional legacy side, right? I mean, we're, look, we're living in the world today where, you know, risk is increasingly important, you know, while we want things the way we want it, when we want it, where we want it, that runs counter to managing risks. And risk is a huge part of financial services. So how do you actually able to leverage new data sources that traditionally weren't available to, to better assess risks, to better prevent fraud, prevent money laundering, but at the same time allow your customers, whether they're corporate or individual, to be able to transact very, very quickly without any friction. So you had the, the exposure to the industry, going deep into understanding banks, the different players in the in the financial industry, and then you went to the technology side to understand how technology. And then one day somebody calls you and tells you, we're starting uh, City Ventures uh, in Asia, and we need somebody to run this. What was the decision-making process on your mind? I mean, why why you decided to, okay, that's, that's, the, that's what I want. I want to go from very traditional financial services to investment banker, which still you could say traditional, but closer to to the risky part of, of less established organizations, and then you go one, one step closer to, to startups. How, how, what was in your mind? Well, I think on the personal front, I've always liked startups, right? I did a lot of angel investing even when I was a technology banker, I think. So I always liked working with the startups. Um, way back in the day, you know, I was an entrepreneur myself. So, you know, startups and entrepreneurs have always been close to my heart. So it was an opportunity to go back to that. And I think having grown up in financial services, you realize there's a lot of, you know, a lot of innovation is needed, right? So some, an opportunity like City Venture was able to, for me, to go, you know, deeper in learning how a bank actually operated and where they needed help to innovate. And it also gave me exposure, right, to a lot of sort of new companies and new technologies that is trying to disrupt or at least partner with traditional financial institutions. So it was a very, very exciting opportunity to get into that. And I think sometimes, you know, it's better to be lucky than smart. It was also good timing. It was, you know, 2010, just as sort of at the beginning of that first wave of fintech startup, whereas, you know, today, you know, you don't have to explain to almost anybody what fintech is. Back then, you still kind of had to. But there was actually another another change. I mean, you, you were based in the U.S., uh, so you were doing a lot of uh, of your all of your previous career, maybe kind of a global thing, but still based mainly in in the U.S. You were moving to to Asia. You were gonna be focusing more on a, on an Asia angle on, on what on a, on what you were doing, and that was another change for a lot of people. So how was uh, fintech in Asia back then? How was uh, the industry in uh, for financial industries in, in Asia in 2010? 
Well, I think in 2010, FinTech really was just starting, right? So the, in the U.S., you had companies, like I said, like Lending Club. You know, I would say in China towards 2010, 2011, you started to see companies emulating some of these business models. But I think take a step back, right? In Asia, I always felt the opportunity for financial services innovation is even greater because the market is huge or the potential of the market is huge, but it's not being very well served by traditional financial institutions across the board, whether it's banking, asset management, insurance, vast majority of population either couldn't have yet afford certain products, but, you know, with rapid growth in income and, and, you know, GDP in many of these countries, you can see the demand is coming. But how do you actually even qualify these people into traditional financial services? Arena is very, very difficult, right? Not, most of these people never, ever borrowed before. They had no things things that we take for granted in the West, like credit history. Um, they don't have credit cards. So you can also see that, you know, financial services will develop very, very differently in Asia than, than it has in the U.S. So, you know, obviously, if you look at mobile payments, Asia is way ahead of the rest of the world. If you look at credit or lending, very few people in this part of the world will ever carry a traditional credit card, right? They, they borrow in very different, very differently. And mobile is a huge enabler, particularly in Asia, because they bypass landlines and traditional infrastructures. So it also, it just, it was very obvious that Asia was going to be even more exciting, in my view, than perhaps the U.S. or, or Europe from a fintech innovation perspective. Okay, one of the things that a lot of people that, uh, that come to Asia, China, they realize in certain very traditional industries is that the lack of legacy, the lack of a legacy infrastructure, sometimes instead of being a burden because uh, you don't have things, actually is a, is a release. Because when you're building things, you don't have to consider how to integrate any, anything that existed in the past, any investments, uh, anything that you basically cannot forget because somebody already deployed. You need to, to integrate that. So from a venture perspective, having this global perspective of, uh, of having work on, on technology and financial services uh, globally, how much do you think this lack of, uh, of infrastructure sometimes is something that slows down the deployment of financial services or has actually been one of the key success factors for having a um, faster deployment and acceptance of things like mobile payments and, and other types of, uh, of financial solutions? I think the le- lack of sort of legacy, whether it's technology infrastructure or frankly even legacy business businesses, right, that serve a lot of these unmet needs, um, has enabled startups in Asia to move, move much faster. But, you know, they can actually create brand new businesses without having to consider who are my incumbent competitors. They can enter, you know, these huge white spaces that just weren't addressed at all. And I, I think you see that if you look at all the platforms that have developed in, in Asia, you look at the Alibaba ecosystem, the Tencent ecosystem, and now even, right, the Gojeks and the Grabs, They've gone from ride sharing, now they're doing payments or doing lending. You tend to now see in Asia or in the more developing markets the ability to build horizontally or sometimes the necessity to build horizontally because there's no one else around you to actually support what you're doing. But as a result, these empires are being built today that you know most Western companies can't even fathom. Right? Western companies are very good at building deep vertically. They build products that can bolt onto somebody else's product. In Asia, a lot of these startups, and they're able to grow so quickly because it's just vast open space, both out of necessity as well, frankly, opportunistically to be able to build and leverage, you know, your core, whatever your core key asset is, right? If you think about a Gojek, they started with Raishan, but now they have all these people using 
their services, what do you do? You offer them a wallet. And then what, can, what else can you do on top of that? You can start lend, lend to the drivers who want to purchase the, the bike or, or the car. So then you can start bolt on other services, right? That, those opportunities tend to exist less or don't exist as are much more developed markets because every subsector is already being serviced by somebody. Yeah, that's, that's one of the key things that you see a lot uh, in emerging markets, and particularly in China, where, where companies tend to have a less pure model. And uh, once you're able to capture any, any like, difficult-to-access to asset, you try to monetize a hell out of it and, and try to get as much as, uh, as you can. So at the beginning of uh, when you start uh, in an industry that, that it's maybe uh, uncovered or people doesn't, the, the general industry doesn't know that there's an opportunity there, do you think fintech is, a, is an area where, where you have less barriers of entry? Because sometimes a technology limitation, I mean, when you're developing a simple app, and you can release very fast a, a prototype, get it out to market, and, and have people test it. But when you're working in a financial services startup, if you're going for a B2B case, things need to work slightly better. I mean, you don't want to play with that. And if you're talking with users, users might actually have a lot of problems. If uh, with your app and uh, and discard it and have a very bad reputation that will basically kill any opportunity. So this is an industry where you have a lot of competition and you have a lot of competition from established players that try to enter any single industry. But do you agree or or what what are your thoughts about our starting company in the space in the fintech space in, in Asia and uh, and China? Is this a good place to do that? What do you think makes this uh, an interesting space besides? Um, the market has some opportunities. I think you, you're definitely right. I think, you know, launching a financial services-based product is probably more demanding than yet another dating app or, you know, whatever. And, and that partly because, you know, when you're talk, dealing with people's money, you can't afford to be flippant, right? When somebody using an app because it's their savings tool or they're using it to borrow, they're using it to transact, you know, you don't want anything bad to happen because that could kill you overnight. But at the same time, I think it is actually a good space to enter because the demand is huge and there is barriers to entry, right? Not everybody can develop a product to satisfy sort of tougher technology needs, not just the basic sort of technology you need to build whatever service you're building, but everything around it, right? Security is extremely important. It's only going to become more and more important. How do you manage risk? These all take actually in-depth expertise that is difficult for the average person or average startup to emulate. So yes, in, in one sense, maybe it's a little bit harder than maybe a startup in a different space, but at the same time, it does give you sort of some a moat around, right? Some competitive advantage for you to actually grow. You know, that being said, right? If you look at what happened in alternative lending space in China, we started with a few companies and almost, what seemed like overnight, all of the thousands of companies were doing exactly the same thing, partly because the market was so huge and the demand was so huge. But, you know, over time now we see, right, more than half of those companies have gone out of business because, you know, forget the ones who are fraud, but even those who weren't fraud, they just weren't able to manage risk properly. And they ultimately, you know, went out of business. Uh, so the, those who actually know what they're doing can rise to the top and, and take dominate these enormous markets. Okay, good. So we're seeing now uh, a huge race in corporate venture capital. So corporates are becoming more and more closer to, to startups. They're trying to get involved with startups. And you had this, this experience. I mean, you were part of the launch and the operation of a corporate VC. So what are the good things? What are the competitive advantages that a corporate VC brings to a, to a startup when they become an investor? I think a corporate venture, you know, since 2008, there's been a resurgence of corporate venture. You know, in the previous sort of dot-com bubble, 
It was a huge uh, increase in corporate renting, and then they all went away when the market crashed. Since 2008, they've come back with a vengeance, I would say. Hopefully this time, you know, it's more, more here to stay. It will be less fickle. I think a good corporate VC can bring a lot of strategic value to a startup, right? They, can, they obviously are a conduit to the actual businesses where the, the startup could be a partner for or sell their products for. They can help them think about, you know, long-term product development and business development opportunities. They probably have, can provide technology advice. So a good corporate VC can bring a lot of that. I would say on the flip side, a bad corporate VC can also, you know, probably if they try to get involved in running the business of a startup too much, it might actually make it more difficult for that startup to work with a multitude of larger incumbents in the industry or try to direct them in a direction that is, let's say, maybe particularly tailored to this strategic, but then make it more difficult to sell to others. So I think uh, as a startup, you know, whether you want to take money from a corporate VC or not, you really got to think about what are, what are the benefits they bring you um, and to make sure you have enough independence that you can run your business the way you need to run it and not be beholden to any one particular investor. So for a founder, for a startup that is, is evaluating racing from a corporate VC, what do you think is, are the key questions? What are the key questions that a founder should ask or what are the key terms that they should include in a negotiation with a, with a corporate VC to make sure that, some of these problems that you mentioned, uh, they don't happen. I mean, there's probably no one-size-fits-all answer, right? I think in certain cases, you, you'll want to see a commitment from the business to actually engage with the startup. So whether that is delivering revenue, delivering additional partners, introducing to additional customers. On the flip side, sometimes the strategic will ask for certain exclusivity. And those you have to negotiate very hard because you have to think about what potential, you know, opportunities you're foregoing if you are required to sign exclusivity. And certainly some strategists will want to have a rofer from a, on a bio perspective. And then you, again, you have to think about that very carefully because at the end of the day, you want to have as many options to exit as possible and not be tied to any one particular potential buyer. So I think, yeah, you just, like all things, you have to balance the pros and cons. And oftentimes, you know, I, I, I do advise some of our staff if they can try to get, if they want to raise a strategic, from strategic, if possible, try to raise it from more than one. So that way you're not beholden to any one particular investor and you have more options. And that's what you did. No, when, you, when you started Arbor Ventures with this experience of coming from the venture side, you decided to work with different strategics. And in your LP base right now, you have a lot of uh, strategic players in the in the space, so you can have these uh, these opportunities. What's the from an Albert Ventures perspective? What do you think is the the key difference that you have? How how would you compare yourself to uh, the strategic? Because you are very specialized. I mean, you do fintech. You were the first VC fund in the region specializing in fintech, and you leverage all of that experience, previous experience in the, in the corporate VC. So what do you think makes you uh, similar to a corporate VC, and, and what makes you different? Well, first and foremost, you know, we're not a corporate VC. We are an independent venture fund. So you know, our decision-making processes and, and our ultimate objective is aligned at, to a t- typical sort of financial VC, right? We're here to make money. But what differentiates us, perhaps, from another fund that also invests in fintech is our deep strategic relationships that we have that allows us to understand markets and products perhaps faster than some of our other VC friends. It allows us to tap into a vast network of experts who can help us understand key trends and who can help us evaluate competitive landscapes, who then on the other side serve as partners and customers for our startups. 
So I think our startups, you know, from what we hear from CEOs is they really appreciate the fact that they don't have to spend a lot of time educating us on what exactly is that they do. And we open a lot of doors for them to, you know, to C-suites of large financial institutions so they don't have to go figure out, you know, who out of the 50,000 people at Citibank I need to talk to in order to, for somebody to be interested in my product. We can get them to the right decision makers and, and shorten the sales cycle for them. I, I think, yeah, to, to your earlier point, right, I think when I was at City, I saw all the advantages of being a corporate, a strategic investor, but at the same time, I think, you know, being tied to one particular strategic also has downsides. So when we, you know, we're raising Harbor for our first fund and it's continued this way, um, we actually purposely went out to a lot of different strategic in and around financial services space. You know, we have banks, we have asset management firms, we have insurance companies who are investors in our fund. And they provide different perspectives. They operate in different markets. So some of them are country-specific, some of them are global. So it gives a lot of insights to what's happening in in and around financial services. So that allows us to actually be much more helpful to our startups. A lot of people that I know in the that play a role in, in corporate VCs, they, they mention that part of the responsibilities when they are uh, investing in a company, in a startup, is protecting the startup from the corporate and making sure that all the corporate red tape and politics and sometimes this um, interest only in the, in the main business doesn't impact the startup. So the startups can actually, can actually grow and develop their business with a success uh, definition that is different from the success of the, of the big company. When you have a group of, uh, of LPs all coming from that side, and obviously all, none of them has the same uh, bargaining power, same uh, capacity to influence when they are part of their own corporate VC, you are somehow educating too corporates into working with startups. What do you think are the key changes that you're seeing in corporates in their way they're approaching relationship with, relationships with startups right now? I think, yeah, I think you make an excellent point. I think, you know, if not careful, a, a big corporate, even with the best of intentions, can smother a startup and kill a startup because the processes are so long in order to get something done for a typical, particularly in financial services, just, and it's out of this, and it's important, it's out of necessity. So I think the smarter strategic sort of corporate venture groups have, you know, developed sort of fast track programs that allow startups to engage with their, with their business units faster. They build sandboxes where you can play with certain limited amount, but at least some amount of data to show efficacy of the, of the product or the technology. They may be able to short pass some of the procurement processes for, for the startups. You know, some of these could take years um, if you're not careful. And, and the average startups doesn't have that type of sort of runway to spare, if you will. So I think the good, you know, corporate strategic VCs understand that. And they do their best to kind of create an environment. While on the one hand, it satisfies the needs of the corporate. Um, on the other hand, it shortens sort of the sales cycle, cut through a lot of the non-necessary less important red tapes, if you will, to allow these startups to actually be able to engage with these corporates much faster and deliver results faster. Good. So we are here in Rice today, and there's a great push globally as a, for female entrepreneurship and pe- people in female in the, in the venture space. There's a whole booth, a whole area for female female entrepreneurs. There were free tickets for, uh, I think, like a thousand tickets for, uh, for female founders. And we see a lot of push, uh, starting with the statistics about number of, uh, of female VC-backed startups. But there's actually, uh, where I see actually a lot of difference is in the VC side. 
is the number of, uh, of general partners, female general partners in, uh, in VC funds. And you are an exception. I mean, you are uh, one only female GP VC fund and, and the largest one uh, last year that, uh, that closed, uh, closed a fund. How is this something that for you is, is different? Is this something that is opening doors? Uh, are you seeing any difference being a female-only VC fund? Yeah, I mean, I think it's no secret that the venture commu- venture capital industry, you know, those, I think statistics show anywhere from 5 to 6% GPs, partners, are women. And I think if you take away some of the operating partners, the ones who actually get to make real decisions, maybe even fewer, and you can probably count on two hands, number of only female-only sort of partnerships. I do think the industry is changing, you know, uh, but it takes time, right? Venture is a, is a long-term business, and it takes years for someone to learn the business, to go from maybe an associate to a principal and then eventually to a partner. So we are seeing more and more women joining the lower ranks, and the question is can we continue to keep them and train them and groom them to take over eventually? I think it, it will take time. It, won't have, it can't have happened overnight just like any other industry. And I think I'm very, very fortunate, my partner Melissa, Gazi and I, we were both, you know, she was running a very large venture fund in Asia for a Silicon Valley-based fund, and I, I was at City. You know, we got together because we, we had a chance to co-invest, and, and we had a similar vision of a firm that we wanted to build, and, and it's been great for us. I, I think in some ways, right, we created our own opportunity to be in, in this position, and I certainly, I think, encourage other, more and more other women to try to do it. You know, you do take a risk, so you leave a comfortable nice paying job to basically be an entrepreneur yourself. And that's maybe not for everybody, but I think for probably more women should be willing to take that risk. Because I think investing, like anything else, right, the broader the perspective you bring to the table, the better investment you're probably going to be able to make. And that perspective can come from different industry backgrounds or experiences, but I think gender also plays a role. So yeah, so I think diversity is, you know, itself is good, actually, even if you just look at it from a returns perspective and not, not even thinking about it from what is, quote-unquote, like the right thing to do. I think just purely selfishly, if you want to generate the greatest return, right, more diversity of thought and experience is a good thing. On our side, SSB is a very active investor in female-funded female startups. Last year, we were number one most active in the world. This year, we're second most active in the, in the world. And we do that not just because we want to positively discriminate women, but because we believe there's a group of investors that are blind to the opportunity. The fact is that a lot of our female-funded startups, they end up raising more money than male-led led, led startups. And that's because sometimes there's a, there's a this discrimination where there's a more requirements. You need to do more as a, as a female funder. You need to show more traction to um, be considered for, for an investment. We don't have that investment bias. And for us, that's an opportunity because we're getting, we're working with entrepreneurs that are ignored by, by other funders. And we're, I mean, we're able to get into these type of opportunities and, and work with, with amazing funders just because it's blind people that ignore that. Do you see uh, more, do you feel there's more, more female entrepreneurs that are approaching you as Arbor Ventures because they think that they'll be able to work with you more comfortably? Do you see that also as, a, as an opportunity for you? You think at your stage that has changed? And there's less, less uh, investment bias to uh, gender. No, we certainly don't have a bias um, when it comes to gender, naturally, I like to think. But I think definitely over the last couple of years, we're probably seeing more and more female entrepreneurs starting businesses or at least being part of the founding team of the business that we're backing. So I, th- I think that is a good thing. I think, you know, inherently, right, financial services, technology, we almost have a double whammy in that neither one is 
traditionally a fe- you know female dominated industry so when you put the two together you know the intersection of that Venn diagram is even smaller i do think we are starting to see more women and i think to your point you guys are very smart right to invest because perhaps in the early days other vcs or other investors are less willing to give the female entrepreneurs money that means frankly you get in probably at a better valuation you build a better relationship with those entrepreneurs and when they are successful you reap greater rewards yep so what's coming for uh, for ever ventures as you said i mean as a, as a vc as a founder of a vc fund you are an entrepreneur and uh, you need to deliver every day you need to deliver to your to your clients to to your LPs and you also need to you also, you also need to go fundraising. I mean, you just raised, so now you're on, on on vacation for fundraising. You don't have to go on roadshow for uh, for that uh, anymore. But what's coming for Ever Ventures? What's what's the future looking like for the next few years? You know, I, th- I think for us, it's not about you know how much money we raise, but do we do a good job managing the money that we do raise, right? And if you're successful in that, you'll you'll continue to be able to raise more and more funds. For us, what's really key right now is building a really good team. We think we have a great team, but we can always do better to, to groom our team. And hopefully many of them are still relatively, I think, besides Melissa and myself, our average age is below 30 for sure. You know, as they continue to mature in this industry, you know, can, will they be principals and eventually partners? I think that's really important for us. Um, the other thing that's different, I think, for Arbor compared probably to most other venture funds is we, are, uh, we have a global footprint. So we have investments in China, Japan, Southeast Asia, U.S., and Israel. Uh, so we have a geographically diverse team as well, and distributed team. So that, you know, that takes time to manage, and, and you want to have the right culture permeated throughout the entire organization and, and each individual location. And I think we continue to be excited by opportunities in fintech, and we also invest in insurtech. Um, that's another huge area where you know, insurance companies are starting to embrace innovation and partnerships with startups. And we also actually do invest sort of, there's a lot of emerging technology, whether you're talking AI, you're talking, you know, the latest sort of cybersecurity capabilities, all of these are becoming increasingly important for adoption in financial services. So I, think, I don't think we'll ever run out of ideas and run out of companies to invest in. So we're very, very excited for our future. Thank you very much, Wei. So if any financial institution or anybody in the insurance industry wants to contact you, if any, if any founder wants to apply for funding from uh, Arbor Ventures, how, how can they contact you? Wholeman at arborventures.com. Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time today in the middle of the conference for this podcast. Yeah. And uh, great to have you today here. Bye. Thank you, man. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, China Accelerator. They are a accelerator based in Shanghai, bringing international ideas into China and Chinese ideas international. They're number one in what they do. They're a three-month program, and they help build your idea and make it amazingly successful. You can find out more at www.chinaaccelerator.com. People Squared is the original co-working space in China. It's your home for startups, no matter what you're working on. Small team or large, it has all the resources, the environment, the culture, everything that you need to take your idea and make it successful. Founded by Bob Jung, an entrepreneur himself who really understands what startups need, it's a great place to bring your team and find success. You can find out more at people-squared.com. Hey, everyone. 